0: This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julie Magana. Episode 11
1: These are our people.
2: Welcome back to EM Pulse. We want to say a big thank you to all of you who listen and support us. We are now approaching 23,000 downloads, which is pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. And we could not have done this without the amazing support of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis and OM Audio Productions, who make us sound so good. So please help us get the word out about eImpulse and help others discover our podcast by rating us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on social media at e-impulse Podcast.
3: And you know, Sarah, I'm super excited because November is just around the corner and I'm headed to Maui. We have the 15th annual Emergency Medicine Hot Topics Conference taking place in Maui from November 6 to 10. It's going to be in Hawaii, and there's still time for those last few people to register.
2: Have I mentioned that I'm
3: jealous?
2: (laughs) (laughs) So our topic today, like many topics we wrestle with, is not easy, and it's politically charged. While this is a UC Davis EM podcast, and a lot of the voices you hear today are from UC Davis, including our own opinions, these may or may not be the opinions of the UC Davis system. So just keep that in mind.
3: You know, Sarah, we haven't talked too much about what it's like to be in the emergency department. Some of you are there every day, and others of you may have only been there as a patient or have never been to the emergency department. But you may have an idea from watching TV or being a part of it or working there day in and out that it is a crazy, messy, busy, chaotic place. And we as providers are rushing between sick people and maybe not-so-sick patients trying to give everyone our full attention. One minute, I feel like I can be taking care of a dying child, and in the next second, I take care of a child with a sprained toe.
2: Have you ever asked yourself, who is the ED for? Do you think of the critically ill, the trauma patients? Do you think of the febrile infant or appendicitis? What is appropriate use of the ED? What is our role in medicine and in society? Do you
3: grade a patient on appropriate use of the ED? Today, we're going to discuss the topic of homeless patients in the ED. If you have ever worked in an ED, you have taken care of a homeless patient. And as you will hear, there are many opinions on what our role is with homeless patients.
2: But one thing is for sure, in California at least, our role has changed. Senate Bill 1152 was signed on September 30th. It defines
3: our role pretty clearly, and it may be surprising to some of you. I know it was for me. Sarah you and I both took care of Michaela and if you've worked at UC Davis you may know her too because Michaela is a transgender teenager with diabetes type 1 who's also homeless and who some might call a super user she was kind enough to talk with me about her story what it feels like and why we have seen so much of her lately Tell us what brings you into the emergency department today, what you want to share.
0: Well, I came from my insulin, from my diabetes, and primary care, since I'm lacking that, too.
3: Do you mind talking to us about where you live at?
0: Currently, I live in a shelter. There are hours and everything is weird and can't exactly stay there like a normal home.
3: What's it like to be in the shelter there?
0: uneasy <laughs>
3: Do you feel safe there?
0: Uh no, nah, not really. In what way? Well, keeping my things safe and um, getting food that I need. Just that I need, not that I want. And then a place to sleep so I can deal with my na- the rest of my days and more after for work and everything
3: to get myself started out. What is it like to have diabetes and not have a regular roof over your head? That's very hard.
0: Um, (laughs) It's even harder without insulin, Um, or knowing that I'm running out and not being able to get some to make sure I'm okay. Having diabetes is... Hard even with a home. It's hard to live with it, but I do figure it out enough to still be here.
3: (laughs) Where do you go when you need help with your diabetes? The ER at UC Davis here. My first visit,
0: you guys helped me. Uh, And after that, I just found that you guys were perfect for the rest of my needs
3: anytime I needed it since I'm still in the area. How many times do you think you've been to the emergency department in the past couple of months? Like 10 plus times. Before you moved out to Sacramento, did you have a primary care doctor? Did you have a place that you were getting regular care from for your diabetes? I did, in Dallas, Texas.
0: My parents helped me with that. Stocked up on insulin, and then when I came here to California, after all that, just a little while, in of being homeless. I lost all that medicine. Um I, I was staying at a motel, and uh, I left it with some food and returned the same day later, and that stuff was gone. I wanted to I really desperately get that stuff back, but I couldn't. I'm still here today because i I went through something similar like today and got my insulin, thankfully by the hospital
3: here. So you came to the emergency department and we filled your insulin prescription then? Basically, yeah. yeah. Do you feel like people treat you any differently when they hear that you don't have a traditional home? Or do you feel like there's any different approach that the nurses and the providers uh, have when they, when they see you? Or do you feel like there is no difference?
0: I do think about that. But I'm also going through a transitioning thing. So I do think all of that does affect... Kind of how you summed it up. But, I mean, I I also look to trust that they still do their job
3: and help me. Has anybody said anything or made you feel in any particular way that may not have been as ideal? Actually, no, not really. Just maybe they're
0: sometimes too quiet or they're a little fast with their work. And maybe sometimes sloppy. So maybe, like, discharge hap- discharges happen too fast and I don't get all the help I needed, or I don't feel like
3: they gave me the
0: resources that they could have.
3: Is there anything else that you think providers should know about, how to talk to people about whether they have a home or not?
0: Well, be the kindest and most truthful you can be. Um, The truth can hurt, but normally people that are here in the hospitals, they try to help, and I I believe they've always tried their hardest. Most of them.
3: <laughs> would you be okay with a nurse or a doctor asking you about where you live? Um, well, they do in the first place. So, um,
0: sometimes no, because I don't want that to be the focus. I came here for other means. What would be a good way for them to ask you about where you live? That, I'm not sure. Where are you staying? Uh, normally is how I'm asked, and, uh, that's, that could mean in, uh, a few different
3: things. So today we were able to get you an appointment with a primary care doctor. Do you have means and ways of being able to get to that primary care doctor?
0: Yes, I actually have somebody I'm talking to. Her name's Carrie. She's a caseworker with um, the self-help housing program that I'm with which is, uh, again, kind of why I call it actually just a shelter. It's not housing for me, and you can't stay there forever. Days can't keep going like that, otherwise they'll see you're mooching off of them, and they'll need you to leave because they need to see you having progress and making some sort of money or something like that. That's what being there is all about.
3: Would you have any words of advice for other young people, like how they can help themselves or how to help work through the system, the complicated medical system that we have? Yeah, they
0: they do need to look for hospitals first off. Uh, If they've got any medical issues like I do, they run to a hospital and ask them how they could get themselves help for their medical condition. And then those hospitals sometimes usually have people that can talk to you for help out of your homeless situation because you have to tell the hospitals where you're staying and you know numbers to give that you trust and how your health is because eating and having a place to live
3: is a big part of it. Otherwise, you don't live very well. I think that sums things up really well. Thank you, Michaela. You were so sweet to take time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Sarah, what do you
2: think when you hear her story? Yeah, her story is really hard to hear. I mean, no one should have to live this way, and especially not a teenager with a life-threatening chronic illness. I think we often don't know our patients' backstories, and we don't really realistically have the time to delve into them. But it's so important for us to hear some of this and to feel it and to empathize with what it might be like to be in her shoes. But it's also really frustrating for me because even if I can take care of her immediate medical needs, there is not much I can do after her discharge. She's still in a really tough spot. So when I first met her, I actually worked with one of our social workers, and we worked really hard
3: to get her into a good homeless shelter for teens. But still, her challenges don't end there. I remember you coming back from that shift and telling me about the first time that you met Michaela and that experience. How did you know she was homeless? Honestly, her appearance was my
2: first clue. Mm. So she was a bit unkempt. Her clothes weren't the cleanest. And she had no one with her, which is a little bit unusual for our teenage patients. I also worked with some homeless youth in med school, and she reminded me a lot of some of them.
3: Do you ask all
2: of your patients? I don't ask everyone, but I do ask anyone that I'm concerned about. I just say, where are you staying?
3: Before working on this, I can honestly say that I did not ask all of them. But I did ask several physicians, nurses, our alcohol and drug counselor, and even social workers if they asked their patients. And I got numerous responses.
0: I screen, but only in certain contexts. If I'm worried about somebody getting the treatment they need at home or having the resources they need in order to receive outpatient treatment, I do make it an issue that we discuss. I've
4: never even thought to ask them if they have a home to go to. Um, I'm not sure why, but it's never seems to have been an issue um, up until real recently.
3: I don't. That to me feels like something that I wouldn't be able to follow up on. That seems more of a social work question, something that is a little too in-depth, more than
4: what we would do here in the emergency department.
5: Yes, I do. by smell, sight, And asking them?
6: I do. And I do that by one, just asking them. If they look like maybe they're hungry or they're not dressed well or they're, you know, they're not showered, then I just ask the question Do you have some place to stay? And if they say no, then I do use the resources that we have. We have something that's called the street sheet. And what I do, because a lot of patients that don't are homeless probably don't have phones, and so I a lot of times try to facilitate either some place for them to stay during the night, that night, or it kind of depends what time of year it is, and then also uh, make sure that they're going to a safe environment, you know, if that's where they want to go. We have some resources for women and children that we don't have for males, So sometimes it's harder to place males, but we do try to find some sort of resources for them.
0: As far as I know, my entire crisis team does, as well as other providers in the emergency room screen for housing.
3: I do, that's one of the first questions I ask. uh, I ask them where they're living at and where they're staying. My whole goal is to make sure they have a safe discharge plan and a place to go, not just discharge them out in the street.
1: I normally include asking patients on, you know, what their housing situation is, who they're living with, if they have a house in their normal history and physical exam. Um, It helps me build rapport, and then I can kind of see on, you know, where their life situation stands. Yes, uh, I also screen for homelessness and the safety of that person's home prior to discharge. And I feel very strongly uh, that in our country, no person over the age of 70 should be homeless, regardless. Everyone over the age of 70 should be able to have access to safe housing.
2: We know that some of these comments may sound a bit harsh or crass to those who aren't taking care of these patients on a daily basis.
3: The frustration that you hear in some of these providers reflects the frustrations we have in taking care of these patients every day. Some providers really want to provide the medical care that they have been trained to provide. And when they're asked to take care of social needs, they just feel like they don't have the right tools.
2: So we've heard several different viewpoints from the ED healthcare providers, but what do the experts say? We interviewed Dr. Basan Salhi, Assistant Professor of Emergency Medicine at Emory and a PhD in Anthropology, and we asked her why she,
1: as an emergency physician, chose to study homelessness. We have this sort of stereotypical idea of what a homeless person is, usually synonymous with a street person, Um, and that's really a very small portion of the people who actually experience homelessness the one thing that all homeless people have in common is difficulty accessing and maintaining stable housing. To cope with this difficulty, people fall back on multiple strategies that kind of exist on a spectrum. So for example, people will double up, so they'll move in with a series of um, friends or family members, um, or they'll couch surf in order to avoid being on the street. People may move into motels, sleep in their cars, stay in shelters, or actually wind up on the street as the small visible portion of homeless people that we see. Um, But really, it's, I think it's more accurate to actually think about homelessness as a spectrum of strategies and consequences of not having stable housing. And it's a huge problem. And the fact that it really exists on such a broad spectrum is really part of the difficulty of kind of studying this topic.
3: Because of this interest, she wrote a review published in Academic Emergency Medicine titled Homelessness and Emergency Medicine, a review of the literature. The first thing that we wanted to know was, what is the definition of homelessness? Is it, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it?
1: I was really drawn to emergency medicine. What I liked about it, in fact, was that it was accessible to all portions of the population. That was something that very much drew me to emergency medicine. Um, And of course, I liked, Um, And I, I enjoyed sort of the acute resuscitations and of the illnesses and all of the emergencies that we dealt with. But, you know, it wasn't until I got to sort of later in residency that I realized that that's not the majority of our job. And the majority of our job was sort of dealing with a lot of vulnerability and a lot of social issues that weren't really active portions of our literature. Bassan and her colleagues performed a lit review
2: looking for articles addressing four questions. What is the prevalence of homelessness? What are the epidemiological characteristics? What are the health needs of homeless ED patients? And what are the evidence-based guidelines for managing these patients in the ED? They only found 28 articles between 1990 and 2016 that fit their criteria. Bassan shared
1: some of the key findings. The majority of patients who show up in EDs are men that doesn't fully kind of reflect the number of people who are homeless nationally. Um, Because what we know is, if you look at like the national homeless population, is that about 40% of homeless people are single women, and about a third of people who experience homelessness are families. The other interesting thing is that homeless ED patients also tend to be a little bit older. Half of homeless ED patients are over the age of 50. What's Really important about that is that the expert recommendations are that we should add about 10 years um, onto an age of a homeless person because homeless people tend to experience comorbidities. So they found that when women did come in,
2: one of the common reasons was assault.
3: I found it interesting that there were no studies specifically on homeless families. No wonder some of us don't know what to do.
2: Yeah, and the most common reason that they found homeless patients coming to the ED was for acute and chronic medical needs, and then
3: trauma, and psychiatric needs were only
2: about a quarter of the reasons that they came in.
3: The review also pointed out that homeless persons have mortality rates three to six times those of the general population. Sadly, they experience higher rates of chronic illnesses, chronic injury, infectious disease, substance abuse, and mental illness than their low-income housed counterparts.
2: I also found it really interesting and sad that homeless veterans had four times the odds of using EDs than a non-homeless veteran. So even having insurance did not increase ED utilization.
3: Sarah, clearly there is a need for evidence-based curriculum, more education. Let's add more stuff to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) Several providers actually mentioned this as a barrier, and Bassan recognized this, so we asked her about it.
1: One of the studies uh, that we looked at actually surveyed residents and asked them, you know, how do you recognize homelessness? How are you treating homeless people? A lot of them said that they were kind of just eyeballing people and seeing if they looked homeless. They were also saying that they were kind of deviating from the standard of care when they were taking care of homeless people. So that's one of the things that's pretty concerning. Obviously, those residents aren't alone. I mean, Michaela's appearance
2: definitely tipped me off. But appearance isn't always should be going on. Providers need better education on how to recognize and approach undomiciled patients.
3: So we asked Bissan, how do you screen and who do you screen?
1: You know, the easiest question to ask is, where are you staying? And it's not an offensive question per se. You can ask it to everyone. It's, I think, a very broad, open-ended question that's a very good way to kind of talk about housing issues that brings about a lot more information than if we just ask a very binary yes or no question.
3: And as we start to ask more patients, I think we're going to find a lot more patients who don't have secure housing.
2: And we know many of these patients. They are often are, quote, high utilizers or super users in the ED. And you may even hear providers and administrators say they are using the
1: ED inappropriately. But Bassan takes issue with this term. What that term implies is that there's a right and a wrong way to use the ER. It's a really dangerous assumption. What's really also interesting about that is that that's a label we give people retrospectively. You know, I think it's a very difficult label to apply, and particularly this very vulnerable population. She makes an excellent point. Many of
2: these patients have multiple health problems compounded by their living situation, and we have to be careful not to dismiss their complaints just because they may have been there 10 times that month. Most of us have a story of a patient who comes in all the time, but one time they came in and they were actually really
3: sick. So again, we have this theme of compassionate care, listening to your patients. We've talked about this in multiple episodes, human trafficking, transgender care. It comes down to don't be a jerk. Take the time to ask and listen.
2: So we've heard Bassan's take on this, but we wanted to hear from our caregivers. So I asked them, what is the ED's role in caring for these patients?
3: Safety, to make sure that they have a place to go and they're familiar with the resources that are offered in the Sacramento area, like food, shelters, uh, medical, mental health, and things like that.
0: I don't know what the role of the emergency department should be overall. I think as a social safety net, we do a reasonably good job helping people when they're in emergent situations. When people come in for issues related to social stability, it's good to have resources to provide, and it's always an important consideration for dispo decisions. Outside of that, I'm kind of agnostic.
4: I'm not sure how big of a role the emergency department is equipped to play in that issue because... There are limitations, and because we're here to see injured and sick people, having a whole population that has nowhere to go really um, hampers our ability to see sick people, and it really scares me. They're in danger of dying from their injuries, and our beds are full of people that, that just have no place to go.
3: I don't know if that's a problem that we need to address here. I mean, we're really supposed to see patients in their time of need, when they're having a medical emergency. And that's what I'm trained to do. I, I never went through a course to help people find housing.
5: Quick treat and street. That means we quickly get seen and then we put them back on the street. Hopefully with a street sheet, but usually not.
3: What's a street sheet?
5: Uh, it's resources for them to find shelter that day or find some rehab center. But usually it, it's all full.
6: I think that if you identify that type of situation, that we should take a role in that. And yeah, I do think it's a role of the ER nurse.
0: Our role in that, it just, it really, it varies and it depends. I would say the only time we really put somebody um, back onto the street when they say they have full capacity to get food and um, they want to go back to the street where they say, yes, I have my tents over here, my dog's waiting for me, I'm going to go have a nice day, then they absolutely can go back. You know, if there's any barriers or, um, or they want anything else, then we do work with them.
5: For better or for worse, we are where homeless patients access care. where the interface between homeless patients and the health system. It may be unpopular to say, I think, therefore, it is our responsibility to try and address it. Uh, we may not always have the resources to address it. And regardless of whatever ethical concerns people have of, of whether it should be our role or not, I think if you look from a public health perspective and a public health expenditure perspective, we spend a lot of money addressing the health in the emergency department of our homeless patients. And if we were better at addressing it, we actually would save money.
3: To get another perspective, we talked with Nick Sawyer, assistant professor of emergency medicine, who did a health policy fellowship here at UC Davis. We asked him all of the questions we asked the other providers about if he screens and what is the role of the ED in the homeless crisis. I ask
5: every patient whether or not they smoke, whether or not they drink alcohol, and whether or not they use any drugs. I ask them whether or not they have a place to stay. And I always ask them if they work as well to sort of get an understanding of if they have access to resources to maybe actually get a home if they don't have one. Yeah, Every time. We're the primary care providers. They come here for everything. Um, And particularly, you know, given the fact that one out of every three Californians is on Medi-Cal and it's very hard for patients on Medi-Cal to get uh, follow-up. So they frequently just come to the emergency department. So I feel like These are our people. The homeless people in our community are our people. And it's a big part of what we do is taking care of the homeless population.
2: Whether we think this is our role or not, it is now legally our issue. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned California Senate Bill 1152. We caught up with Nick again to learn more about this legislation.
5: It was introduced in February of 2018, and it is based on an ordinance that was started back in 2007 in Los Angeles County that was uh, put in place after patients had been essentially dumped, discharged from hospitals onto Skid Row. And so since that time, they put this ordinance in place that said that you can't just discharge patients from the hospital without somewhere to go. You have to have some organized plan of where patients can go. And there's actually penalties that are associated with it. What's happening now at the state level is we are seeing this increase in homelessness throughout the state.
3: The goal of this bill was to avoid inappropriate discharges to the streets. The original bill required every homeless patient seen in the ED to be given 30-day supplies of all medications, durable medical equipment, public health screening, all vaccinations, food, clothing, and identify a place for the patient to stay that had agreed to accept them in writing. They could not be discharged during nighttime hours or into inclement weather. Plus, all discharge patients were to have a very detailed discharge summary, including nutritional requirements and rehab potential. All of this without funding for the hospitals to provide these resources. So, 2018, California Chapter of American College of Emergency Physicians advocated to change this bill drastically.
2: This is so hard because, on the one hand, we know this is a huge problem and we want our homeless patients to have access to housing and good medical care. It's like Nick said, these are our people. But as one of our other providers said earlier, we can't house people indefinitely for a shelter that won't take them or that they don't want to go to, and especially while there are patients languishing in the waiting room.
5: But the question is is the right place for this to be done? In the emergency department, we already have a problem with people waiting to be seen, people in the waiting room who potentially have emergencies. And if we are doing a lot of this social work to try and get people plugged into places that have no beds, then that means that our time as emergency providers is being spent on doing more of social work type care than caring for the acutely ill and injured, which is our mission and our goal.
3: We spoke with Dr. Amy Mullen, associate professor of emergency medicine at UC Davis and the immediate past president of Cal-ASEP. We wanted to hear her thoughts on this bill.
7: First of all, I agree. All these things would be wonderful if they occurred. And I would love to be able to have every patient out there have home a food and clothing. My argument with this is, can you really require the healthcare system to provide all of this? And how does this impact our ability to take care of our waiting rooms, which are already full and we're already overburdened. So functionally what happens is we take an opposed position and we write a letter and try to explain and educate our partners and our legislators why this is such a disaster for emergency departments and how this would impact our ability to provide emergency care for Californians. Philosophically, I don't agree with this bill. I don't agree with legislation that tells us how to practice. And the decision to admit or discharge, I feel like, is a clinical decision. And I think every emergency physician has the training and the skill to make that decision. So philosophically, I'm opposed to it. I also disagree that all of these social services are being added to the healthcare system. You cannot simultaneously complain that health care and emergency care is too expensive, yet Put the entire burden of providing social services onto emergency departments and hospitals. Those two things cannot exist together. So fundamentally, I disagree with it. But at the same time, I think that there should be these services for patients. And so I agree with the intent of trying to provide these services for people. So Cal ASAP and others fought hard to make this bill more
2: doable for the hospitals while still providing resources for undomiciled patients. As part of this effort, Cal ASAP sent out a request for members to share their concerns with Governor Brown, and over 800 people sent emails.
3: This is awesome. I mean, this is a part of how we as physicians can serve our communities and improve the system. But what does the final bill look like, and what does it mean for our EDs? The
7: bill was signed and it will take effect July 1 of next year. I'm disappointed that this bill is signed. I will say that at the outside, but it is significantly better than it was. I'm happy to report you are allowed to discharge homeless patients. So that is a huge win for us. Um, We still do have to provide food. We still do have to make sure that people are not discharged without proper clothing. It does ask us to attempt to try and coordinate care for those patients, but none of these activities have to occur in a patient care area. So your hospital could try and provide these services outside of your ER. If you have an on-site pharmacy that is open and staffed, you should provide the patient the medications that you have written for in the emergency department, update vaccinations. Some of this we do already with your tetanus shot. And then your hospital will have to, at some point, make some attempt to notify that patient's assigned care provider or health insurance.
2: So in the end, thanks to Cal ASEP, this bill does feel a lot more doable. A few more pieces that impact us are...
3: We must inquire about a patient's housing
2: status. And the hospital must maintain a log of self-identified homeless patients discharged and the destination to which they were released.
3: We must identify a post-discharge location, such as the social service agencies that have agreed to accept the patient. But it can be a location the homeless patient identifies as their residence or an alternative destination as indicated by the homeless patient.
2: And we should offer transportation, which is up to 30 minutes or 30 miles.
3: And we should place referrals for follow-up of medical and behavioral health needs.
2: If you do not live in California and are wondering if this is relevant to you, remember that many legislative waves start in California.
3: Pulse check. Despite caring for homeless patients frequently, if we are honest, we often feel uncertain or even frustrated. We want to fix it or at least set our patients on a better course, but we don't feel like we have the resources. And sometimes we feel like that it's not our problem at all. Asking is the first step. Where are you staying these days? When we do identify someone who does not have a stable home situation, we know that they're at higher risk for medical problems, trauma, and even death.
2: Michaela came to us for her medical care, and her advice to other people in her situation was to go to the ED to get help because there are people
3: there who help. Be cautious with the term appropriate or inappropriate use. It can cause us to put blinders on to miss issues that we should catch. California
2: Senate Bill 1152 will take effect July 2019. To read the bill and a short summary of the new requirements, go to our website, ucdavisem.com,
3: under the EM Pulse tab. Hopefully, this will help improve our care for homeless patients without overburdening our already crowded EDs.
2: We want to continue this conversation online, but before we go, let's leave you with one final thought.
5: It's not that we don't care. We, we definitely do care. Uh, we take care of this population primarily, but how do we get to the point where we can help them while maintaining our mission that we already have, that we're working on every day?